Exodus 28 through 30. I'll be reading all three chapters. I'm not going to read all three chapters. (laughs) I'll read just chapter 28, and that'll be long enough. Again, uh, the challenge of Exodus, I, I love this book because it demands so much work from us if we're going to hear and to understand and to grow. This is not one of the easy books where it's like, oh, it makes me feel so good all of the time. Uh, This is one where it it requires effort, and that's exciting. means you have to put it in, though. Exodus 28, this is God's word for you today. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments they shall make, a breastpiece, an effort, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. They shall make the effort of gold, of blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be be made like it and be of one piece with it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make the settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords. And you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment and skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And fine twine linen you shall make it. It shall be square and double to span its length and to span its breadth. And you shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. 
And you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece, and you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. And the two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of the filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece uh, on its inside edge next to the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod of all blue, It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A gold bell and a pomegranate, a gold bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on when Aaron, when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place for the Lord. And when he comes out, so he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat and checker work of fine linen. You shall make a turban of fine linen. You shall make a sash of embroidered, make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. You shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. And you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs. And they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they go into the tent of meaning or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. It's a chapter, isn't it? I know you visualized all of the gold rings. I know you got it. I'm not even going to preach on that part. I'm just going to keep going because I know you understand it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for chapters like this again that give us humility. We joke, but we joke at our own ignorance. We do not understand. (laughs) And Lord, we ask that you would make us understand. And we thank you that you are the Lord of life and the Lord of light. And we ask that you would give both, through your word, life and light, even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
the great tax debacle of 2019. That is what we are currently in right now at Christ Ridge, the great tax debacle of 2019. If you've been reading our prayer guide at all or you've come to Wednesday night prayer meeting, you understand poor Tom Nagel and what he's been going through with the great tax debacle of 2019. It's actually so bad. Tom's away on vacation. To get, I'm just kidding. He's at a wedding. I'm just kidding. He hasn't run away from it, though I'm sure he wish he could To oversimplify, effectively what's happened is over the last three years, the IRS has either scanned something in incorrectly or they've checked the wrong box in their computer. That's it. I just summarized the entire great tax debacle of 2019. The problem is, how good is the government at admitting when they're wrong? (laughs) Yeah, you laugh because now you understand exactly what the problem is. Is We've run into a situation where we've paid all of our taxes, and we've actually paid them mostly correct. Um, Paid a little bit too much in one area. And because they have boxes checked wrongs and things done incorrectly, they won't let it go. In fact, it's actually got to the point where talking with Tom and private conversations and the session and everything, we finally got to the point where we're like, look, man, we just just need an advocate. (laughs) Hey, we can't make any more progress with the power that is the IRS. If you listen to the radio at all, they they are the most powerful tax collection agency in the world. So, in fact, actually, it's so bad, we've had to go to Ralph Norman's office. We've had to talk to the CEO of our payroll company, one of the three largest payroll companies in the country, We've had to talk to the tax advocate to say, look, can you just get them to check the box? It literally, all it is is for them to open the entire program up, check one box and hit save, and the whole thing goes away. Can you just get them to do that? And it's amazing how, again, we've, we've felt this overwhelming kind of sense of longing as a session to say, we need an advocate. We need a go-between. The IRS doesn't listen to us. We're just normal peons. We're the lowly citizens of this country. We don't have any cachet for them to listen to us. We need somebody with enough authority, with enough power, with enough ability, with enough know-how to represent us to them. To say, you guys need to just check the box, man. So they'll check the box and it'll all go away. It's hard to actually think of an illustration in which we have, as any kind of people, feel that profound longing for a representative. Most of the time in America as it is today, certainly with the rise of the Internet and certainly Facebook and Twitter and such, it's like, I don't want anybody to represent me. I want to send my own tweets out. I want to send my own Facebook posts. I want to have my own voice. I don't want somebody to have a voice for me. And I suspect part of that is because we're never really afraid of the people on the other side. And I can sit down at my computer and I can type out my hateful tweet and hit send and it goes out and everybody gets to hear all the hateful things that I have to say because I'm not afraid of anybody else. I don't care. But that's not the situation that you're in when you're dealing with the IRS. You kind of have to respect them a little bit because they have the ability to seize your land, to seize your building, to shut us down. It's very much the situation that the Israelites are in here where they're interacting with God in Exodus 28, not because he's about to seize their land or can take their property or things like that, but because they're actually confronted with somebody that scares them. 
You remember this part of the book is happening and they're at the base of the mountain looking up. And on the top of the mountain, the storm has settled in and the lightning and the wind and the fire and the earthquakes and the tremors. And oh yeah, by the way, if even the cows step onto the mountain, you have to kill the cows. Make sure the little boys don't decide to be rebellious and go rock climbing because you've got to kill them too. It's actually so scary that Israel as a nation has kind of given one collective nope. They're not interested. They, they want to go away when invited to come closer. They're just not really on board with that. Moses is going to come down later and his, his face is going to radiate and he's going to be glowing because of the glory of God. And Israel is going to be so scared of that God. They're going to say, you have to put something over your face, man. We can't deal with that glory. It's too big for us. Again, we, we as Americans today don't long for the idea of a priesthood. We don't long for the idea of a representative, largely because we're not terrified of people anymore. We don't run into situations where somebody is our better, and we know it, and it scares us. That is exactly where Israel is. Their God has just effectively nuked the largest country, the most powerful country on the planet. He had the sea open up and eat them. That's pretty special. Now he's brought them to the base of the mountain and he's about to show them who he is. And they're not okay with that fact. And now he's giving them something that would have been unbearably kind. A priesthood. A go-between. Somebody to shield them from the terror that it is to be in his presence. Chapters 28, 29, and 30 lay out the nature of this priesthood. 28 that we talked about lays out their attire, their dress. It's a description of what the priest would look like. And again, we read this and our minds kind of shut off after four verses. I wanted to read the whole thing just so you feel guilty afterwards. Um, I'm just kidding. That's not why I read it. But what it's describing here is a man, verse 2 actually framed it out for us, so that when you saw him, you would think of glory and beauty. Two words that we very rarely think about men when we see them dressed. Oh, look, there's glory and beauty right there. Look at that guy. But again, part of that, I guess, is more a description of how much wealth we have today. Where everything that we're wearing is mostly clean depending on how recently you chose to do laundry. Everything that we have is in mostly good repair, depending on if they're your favorite pants that you really wanted to wear anyways. Everything we have is nice and wealthy and good, and in the time in which this is being written, almost everything is (laughs) dirt-colored. When you have to wash it by hand and you don't have a formal dyeing process, everything eventually becomes dirt-colored. That's why dye was so extremely expensive, and the really bright colored dyes were connected with royalty. Why did the royals wear purple or blue or red? Well, because they were either from ground-up sea urchins, a specialty type of ground-up earthworm that only grew in one portion of the region, or ground-up fungus that grew in the foothills of the mountains. Crazy things that were hard to find. And as we've had this tabernacle described where God lives, it's been a place of beauty and glory. 
We've had linen hanging on the walls. We've had blue and scarlet and purple embroidery all around it. And everything is covered in either gold or silver or bronze, depending on how close it is to God. And it's intriguing that when you go to describe the priest, he's described like a piece of the furniture. Did you catch that? It's described. It's actually, we've just been talking about the furniture and all of the things. And here when we get to 28, it's like, look, now I'm going to tell you about what the high priest is, specifically the high priest, what the high priest is supposed to wear, and he's going to wear the furniture. It's going to be made out of all the exact same stuff. It's going to be, you heard the reoccurring refrain, didn't you? It's going to be made out of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and finely twined linen. Those are the three things that the entire tabernacle is comprised of. It's made so that if you saw the man out of context, you would know exactly where he belongs in the tabernacle because he matches the furniture. It would be a very similar type of experience. Let's say yesterday, let's say yesterday at maybe 5 o'clock, you'd forgotten something for dinner and you had to run to the grocery store. So you'd run to Publix or Aldi or Lidl or wherever you go get your food. I don't care. And while you're there, you see this young lady, very pretty, her hair's done up in you know, an amazing way, in a long white dress carrying the trail with a, you know, a bag of cheese sticks and some fingernail polish sprinting through the store. And what would you immediately think? Like, Honey, you're missing your wedding, sweetie. You're in the wrong place. I don't know what happened, but you've made some questionable choices because you belong in a church. You don't belong in Aldi at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. You belong at your wedding. We, we see that kind of intuitively. We see a wedding dress and we know where does a wedding dress belong? It belongs in the church. It doesn't belong at a grocery store Saturday at 5 in the evening. Likewise, this man, when you see his clothing, it would, it would belong in the tabernacle. He has six parts that are described here, and then the holy underwear, which is my favorite part in the holy underwear. I don't know if you caught that at the very end, that if he doesn't wear his holy underwear, he gets killed when he goes into work in the t- tabernacle. God kills him. Again, strong motivation to manage your laundry schedule correctly. You know, oh, no, it's time for me to work. I didn't. Oh, what do I do now? You know, yeah. Six parts that they wear, ephod, breast uh, piece, what the ESV calls breastplates, the traditional robe, tunic, turban, and sash. And it would have been really quite impressive. You, know, you think about a bride and how much energy and effort it takes to get her ready. It's the same kind of thing for this guy. It would have been impressive. He's wearing uh, a, a tunic underneath. It's kind of an undergarment. Then he has a, uh, a bright blue robe that's got some sort of check pattern in it with gold all on the edges. And then he has uh, the uh, ephod over top, which is, uh, for argument's sake, we'll say it's a holy apron, just for argument's sake to kind of wrap your brain around it. And then on top of the holy apron, he has the breastplate, uh, breastplate or breastpiece attached on top of it. All of it's attached with gold. It's all made out of blue and linen and the scarlet and purple yarn. And it would have been quite uh, the impressive sight. Mix on top of that, he's barefoot. And then he has the giant turban on the top with a giant gold plate on the front of the turban uh, that says, holy to the Lord. And it would have been in a land that is dirt colored, quite the striking figure. Again, you saw him and you would thought, your first thought would be, what are you doing here? You belong in the tabernacle. You belong in the place 
where God lives. It's important that it begins and ends this chapter with it is a description for glory and for beauty. And that's going to be the first thing that we kind of highlight here is that this attire, in fact, actually all these chapters are really training the Jews to be ready for Jesus. It's to help them be thinking in the correct categories for when Jesus shows up. So much so here that we're getting to see the priesthood is this holy activity, even to the point where it trickles down and impacts his dress, his clothes. And again, the thing we struggle with here is that the level of precision and detail, it's shocking, isn't it? That the holy apron has a specific band on it that when the breastplate is strapped to it, that the breastplate sits on the band that's sewn so that the gold rings can clip on the hips and clip on the shoulders. I mean, the level of detail is shocking. So that when the man would have to bend over and work, the breastplate didn't swing out and get in his way. Kind of inconvenient when you're slaughtering animals. How impressive it is. But the part I think that's so intriguing to me is kind of the little bits of addition that are added there is uh, attached to his holy apron and such. He has two giant stones on the shoulders that are engraved and not just engraved with names etched in them. The language here is more of like uh, embossed like a, a fancy logo. They've put the family crest of the different tribes of Israel on his shoulders. And I don't know about you, I, I don't like carrying tons of things in my pockets because I don't like carrying lots of extra weight. The idea of having giant stones strapped to my shoulders, not my real favorite idea of kind of walking around. I don't wear football pads for fun. It's not what I do. I don't wear weighted vests. Weighted vest, that's what he effectively has. He has the names of Israel here, and then on top of his breastplate, he has all of these fancy stones. And the fun part here in verse 17 and following, all these stones... The vast majority of them, we have no idea what they are. No clue. Your English Bible attaches a stone to it to give us a concept of which one it is. They have no idea. Most of them. They're just taking a good, educated guess. No clue. The thing we do know, nine of these 12 stones are listed back in the Garden of Eden. They're listed specifically connected to beauty and to glory. What they're trying to draw out here, Moses and God both are trying to draw out, is again this idea of just the glory of the Lord being contained in a person. So that when you saw this guy, he would be the most marvelous person you had ever watched. And written on his actual clothing were the names of Israel and the names of Israel and holy to the Lord. So that in his very attire, it was teaching you. This was a priest who's here to represent the people. This is a priest who's supposed to to help the people. This is a priest who's got the people's best in mind. This is the representative they've been longing for. The go-between, the one who takes that scary, terrifying God and is the one who stands between them. It's pretty amazing. It doesn't stop there, though. It continues into chapter 29. We didn't read all this. You can read it later. It's great. 
It goes through what would be required in order for Aaron to serve as the high priest and what would follow after that. And the amazing thing is this priest can't even dress himself. It requires others to help him get dressed. It's such a complicated process. Verses 1 through 6, he has to be washed because he himself is not just physically dirty, but he himself is too spiritually dirty even for the task. So he has to be clean. They wash him in the basin, they prepare him for it, and then they anoint him with oil. They pour out, and when you talk about anointing with oil, oil's a big deal. In that time, it was medicine. It was um, good fragrance. I mean, if you think about how many of you have dry skin, there was no lotion. You used oil. That's what it was. For those of you that are hipsters and have handsome beards like I do, you understand what beard oil does. Uh, It's very lovely and smells nice. But even more so with the anointing, it was, uh, that was what set a person aside for a task. Being anointed was God's mark on a person that he had set them aside to do something. It's why that term would become so significant that it would officially become a, you know, kind of an officialized office term, which would become Messiah. It just means the anointed one. It's the overwhelming significance of God's choosing a man. Here, these priests would be anointed, the high priest would be anointed, and then he would have three offerings done for him right in a row. Boom, boom, boom. 10 through 14 describe a sin offering where he places a hand on the animal's head and the animal is slaughtered right there in front of him. Parts of it are burned, parts of it are taken outside the camp and his sin personally is paid for. Then a second animal is then slaughtered and the entire thing is burned uh, for the glory of the Lord and then a third one is done the same. The last one, though, is the really weird one. I love it. All right, so at first I was doing the math on this. This is a really interesting thing to think about. So your average cow has uh, just over, what is it, like, uh, I think, 10 gallons of blood in it? You're thinking right here, that, that is a spectacular amount of blood. I mean, we're, we're talking in the neighborhood of 30 gallons. Think about the last time you dropped just a glass of milk on the floor. And how long it took to get all of the milk up, or if you dropped a glass of soda, and it's sticky in places that you didn't even know could get sticky. And the next time you have to replace your oven, you pull it out, and you're like, how did stuff get here? I think about the sheer quantity of the, the, you know, the amount of blood that's happening here. Uh, during Nero, they had one spe- special festival where they slaughtered 256,500 animals in the space of a week, which is, I was doing the math the same as three Olympic swimming pools of blood. That's just under three million gallons of blood for those one week inside the temple. I mean, think about it. There's blood everywhere. So here, this is the other thing that's amazing is you have this guy who's wearing the most marvelous outfit you've ever seen, and it's covered in blood. In fact, actually, the third uh, animal that was uh, given there as part of the sacrifice, they took the blood from the animal and they smeared it on his right earlobe, his right thumb, and his right big toe. That's what he had to have done to him as part of his ordination. Again, why? Because his, his outfit is conveying a connection with the people. His very service is conveying a connection with the sacrifice. So that when they would look at the priest, they would see certain things ringing in their minds. They would see, look, here's a man who has me on his heart. When he goes before God, he's literally carrying my name on his heart. Here's a man who is the physical representation of the sacrifice. 
you wouldn't be able to look at him and not think about it. Can you imagine slaughtering an animal in a robe? Think about that just for a moment, barefoot in a robe. Where is that blood going? The correct answer is everywhere. And then they had to put it on the horns of the altar. They had to splash it on the sides of the altar. The guy would have looked like some sort of horror movie villain with blood all over him. And then I love in verses 31, 34, the final kind of capstone to his ordination does the thing that you can tell I am, I am from the suburbs. If you had ever doubted, uh, you shouldn't. But if you ever had, uh, I'm going to show my hand right here. They do the thing that I could never conceive of doing. And they sit down and have a meal together. Like, out of all things I'm going to want to do at that point, eating is probably last on the list. I'm all for like, let's go get a shower. Let's go find a river. Let's and they sit down and share a meal and fellowship and commune. And have this common union together with their God. It's intriguing how in that first part you see him being connected in holiness with the people. And then in his ordination you see him in holiness connected with the sacrifice. And then in chapter 30 in their service you see them being in holiness connected really with their God. The various parts and pieces of the service here, they, they jump into the verse 30, or chapter 30, and it seems like a slightly strange transition here, the, explain the altar of incense. A large part of what the priest would do is they would uh, light incense regularly, and it would burn uh, and fill, you know, giant cloud of it, filling the temple, filling the tabernacle, filling the region, which later is going to be picked up in the New Testament kind of as being a foreshadowing of even how the priest would bring the prayers of the saints to the Lord, how this this bringing of offering to God, this pleasing offering. And then 11 through 16, you get to see they talk about the census tax. And this is one of those great ones that we're like, I have no idea why that's in the Bible. And no, it makes good sense. It wasn't just a census tax the way we think of it. They used the census tax for one primary purpose. Uh, It was to keep track of males that were of age to serve in the army. It wasn't just simply a tithe or an offering to keep the, the, the tabernacle running. It was a way to keep track of who's ready to serve the kingdom of God. It would be more closely aligned today with our nursery list. Who's our nursery workers this week? If you happened to be one of the poor saps that last week opened and went, oh, my name's right here. That would be more closely aligned with the census tax. It's a list of who's ready to serve, who's going to be involved in God's kingdom, who's equipped and ready to be used. The basin for cleansing, uh, the anointing of oil and incense. We skipped over actually two of the most intriguing. The end of chapter 29, they have the morning and evening sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And think about the priesthood again, morning and evening, morning and evening, Sacrifice the Lamb of God. And perhaps the most interesting, certainly the one that I loved as a kid, the idea of thinking about verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 30, the Urim and Thummim. And we don't actually know exactly what those are. As best we can tell, they were holy dice. As best we can tell, they had holy underwear, they had holy clothes, they had a holy hat, and they had holy dice. And these holy dice were the way that the Lord would speak to them to give them answers to specific questions when they needed to consult the Lord. And it's intriguing. Think about about what their ministry was filled with. 
Sacrifices to know God, incense to please God, keeping track of the people who were going to serve God, anointing people, using the Urim and Thummim to know God. It, it was a life that was captured and cultivating by a relationship with the Lord himself. A holy dress representing the people of God. A holy calling that connected him with the sacrifices of God. A holy service that connected them with the presence of God. And all of that was to pave the way for the Lord Jesus. So that when Jesus would show up, all of the Jews would already have all of the categories for what he's going to be. So when he comes and says that he's going to be the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world, they're not just thinking, well, that's, I mean, a bad band from the 90s, I guess. I don't know. I don't know who. The, what are you talking about? No, they're already thinking, they're thinking the lamb that was offered morning and evening. They already have the category. So that when he begins to explain to them his ministry, they already have the category. So that when he stands up in the temple at the beginning of his ministry and reads Isaiah 61, which was our call to worship, they already have the category. They understand what he's proclaiming himself to be is the high priest of God. Not the ironic high priest. The priest. And to think of how equipped he is for the task, not wearing a blue robe with a, uh, you know, a turban and a cool gold plate that would hang on the front of it, uh, nothing of the sort like that. He puts on a better outfit to represent the people of God. What does he put on? <laughs> he puts on their very nature. Second person, the Trinity, instead of putting on a blue robe and a turban, instead puts on flesh. Steps inside humanity. <laughs> think about having the people of God written on his heart. How much more of a reminder would it take that you're flesh and blood for the first time in history ever? You realize he'd never been inside time. The only time God has ever been inside time is when Jesus put on flesh and then will continue forever. Every morning when he woke up, I was like, oh, my back hurts a little bit. How much would that be a reminder of the people of God and his presence? Every time going to the Father to have our names written on his heart. I love that to think about, particularly when we're discouraged, when we're weak and weary, to think that every day Jesus had that physical reminder of our names. And now, raised, fully knowing all of the names of the people of God, having access to the book of life, having your name representing you to the Father. And we have him on record praying for the church. In John 17, he does that. But to think about him still doing that now, do you realize that? That right now, he still intercedes to the Father on your behalf. By name, he names you. How fun is that to think about the Lord Christ praying for you? I mean, I love that you pray for me and I get to pray for you. It makes preaching more enjoyable and I know you've been praying for me. How encouraging is it to think about Christ praying for me? Praying that the sermon goes well, that the word of God is faithfully preached. And then in that preparation, that anointing, and here you have these priests being so closely connected to the sacrifice. What foreshadowing? Jesus would show up and say, we don't need sacrifices anymore. The millions of animals that have been slain over the last, you know, 1,000, 1,500 years, none of them were good compared to what he's about to do. 
that in his, those few bits of liters of his own blood being poured out surpassed the millions of gallons of animals. That he would become the sacrifice. The one only true sacrifice, the one that satisfies for all sin. And then lastly, I love how in chapter 30, when it describes their function, so much of their function as priests is to help them know God. You're like, well, that's the entire ministry of Christ. How do you know the Father? Well, you know the Father in Christ. No one comes to the Father except through me. How his ministry is an invitation, a participation in the work and the person and the communion of the Trinity. It's weird to think about that, isn't it, from that perspective? And so much of the ministry of Christ is just inviting us in to participate and join with the Trinity. That's pretty cool. An amazing series of chapters. There is, uh, however, the lingering question of, okay, well, so what for me? I mean, thank you for nerding out and explaining how the ethid works. I really appreciate the holy apron. It's going to make it more intriguing the next time I read of David dancing before the Lord in only his holy apron. Um, you know, okay, that's neat, Michael. What do I do with that? Well, and I would go one step further. For many of us, we struggle with our faith becoming boring. And I would suggest the reason why we stray into that boring category is because we've lost that sense of beauty and glory of Christ. When we see him as just an ordinary fella and only an ordinary fella... Well, I don't really get that sense of wonder, do I? It's just about figuring out how to make my life a little better. And we forget that, no, he is the great high priest. His job is to take us into relationship with the triune God. So much so, you have a little table here in just a second. We're going to have a family meal together. And you realize, I mean, if we're going to be really technical, where this family meal takes place is not in a prefabricated double wide with dirt being moved all around us with a new building getting ready to go up. This family meal takes place in heaven. And Christ Jesus is going to take us there to fellowship with the triune God in glory right even now. And when we see him as so ordinary, man, what does Christianity become? And the second thing I would say in terms of kind of application takeaways here is sometimes, sometimes we struggle when we hurt because we feel like maybe he doesn't understand or maybe he doesn't have my best interests at heart. And I would say, brother or sister, please be reminded, he stepped inside humanity. He put on time and space and flesh I wouldn't have done that for you, and I love you all. There's no way I would have done that. And yet he did. And then remained under the power of sin, and then under the power of the grave, until being raised again. Any time the devil tries to persuade you that the Lord Jesus does not have your best interests in hearts, please do not listen to him. Go back and reflect on the fact that he is the great high priest And not only that, but mind-blowingly, he is the great priest and the great sacrifice at the exact same time. He has your name written on his heart, holy to the Lord written on his head, and he cares for you more than you will ever know. 
Because realistically, and thinking about back at the intro, we don't ever find ourselves very often in situations where we're terrified of the people in front of us. More often than not, we just get overwhelmed with the circumstances around us. And the challenge is going to be as we get overwhelmed with those circumstances around us to be reminded that we have a high priest who solves all of our problems. Maybe not what we want, but certainly in a better, wiser, more holy way than what we could ask or imagine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for even challenging passages like this that force us to think in ways that we don't normally do. And we praise you for that. Uh, We get too proud and cocky about your scriptures as it is. And we even have passages like this. Thank you. And we do pray that you would even feed us now in uh, the supper. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.